be reading this morning's scripture starting in Revelation chapter 2 and then continuing in Revelation chapter 3 verse 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who, those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And then starting in verse 7 of Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will, I, never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, <clears throat> which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, 
so you can become rich. White clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this fall, we are journeying through the book of Revelation, and Revelation was written by a man named John, who was a very close friend and associate of Jesus, uh, to a a group of churches that he pastored uh, while he was exiled on the island of Patmos for refusing to worship the emperor. Uh, Revelation reveals that behind the circumstances and temptations of our lives, which we can see, is a cosmic battle that we can't see. There are invisible spiritual forces, both good and evil, which are competing for our attention, allegiance, and affection. A few weeks ago, we talked about Babylon. Babylon is a a timeless trope. It's a symbol for any human system that exploits or oppresses or steals our attention away from God. In John's day, Babylon was Rome. But Babylon not only exploits and oppresses, it seduces. It tries to allure us and convince us that it's good for us. That we should want to become part of the system. That we would be better off leaving Jesus behind and coming underneath it. This week I get to participate in a a faculty roundtable at UMass. And the topic was, um, how does technology affect human flourishing? And the speaker Uh, a neurobiology professor from uh, Dartmouth, uh, argued that human beings flourish through connection. Speaker, not a Christian, uh, but he says that human beings flourish through connection, through relationships of love and intimacy and trust. But he said that this requires attention. And our digital world is eroding our capacity to sustain attention which means that it's eroding our ability to cultivate the kinds of relationships that lead to flourishing. And the insidiousness of it all is that these devices that most of us carry around in our pockets are not the product we are. Our attention is being monetized. Our attention is being sold to advertisers and we're giving it to them for free. And the professor said, I have lived in many places around the world, including China, and the United States is without a doubt the most propagandized country I've ever lived in. And by and large, we have bought the lie that we can find life on a six-inch screen. Of course, it's more than just tech. Our particular Babylon traffics in all kinds of propaganda, like the propaganda of more which we might call consumerism. 
the propaganda of personal freedom, which we might call individualism, the propaganda of pleasure or hedonism, the propaganda of overwork or careerism. Sometimes uh, they get combined together. If you mix individualism, hedonism, and consumerism, you get porn. Sex stripped of not only vulnerability and commitment, but relationships altogether. And what John wants us to see is that these isms aren't just misguided, they're demonic. Because they are seducing us to center our lives on something other than Jesus. They are forming us into the image and likeness of the dragon, the chaos monster. There is a cosmic battle and we are caught up in it every day. Spoiler alert, Jesus wins the battle. But if we want to share in his victory, we have to come out of Babylon and come under the gracious rule of the lamb who was slain. We must resist the empire, the isms of our day, and follow Jesus. Last week, Pierre preached a wonderful sermon on John's vision of Jesus from chapter 1, where Jesus is larger than life. He's towering over creation with wisdom and strength. At our small group this, this week, we were talking about how different this picture of Jesus is from Revelation 1 to the Jesus that we meet in the Gospels. Because in the Gospels, Jesus comes to us in weakness and vulnerability, right? He, he takes on our flesh. He's born into poverty. He lives among the oppressed. He comes to his own and his own receive him not. He's despised and rejected. He dies a criminal's death. In the Gospels, Jesus comes in weakness, but one day he will come in power. The lamb will become a lion. Now, in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, Jesus is speaking to the seven churches in Asia Minor, and David just read three of them. These are real places. These are real congregations, not very large churches. Um, but Jesus is addressing each of them, not in generalities, but in specifics. Jesus is among the churches. He's alive. He's not off on a cloud somewhere. He's among us. He's within us. He's attentive to us. He knows exactly what's going on. We said back at the beginning that Revelation is a letter from John to these seven churches, but it also contains letters from Jesus to each of these seven churches. And actually, scholars say that they don't really read like letters um, they're actually much closer to two other forms of literature that, that were pretty well known in the ancient world, one Jewish and one Roman. First, they read like prophetic oracles, like the kinds of prophecies that Jeremiah or Isaiah would write. They are a direct address from God to his people, instructing them how to be faithful. And then second, they read like royal edicts, like a pagan king calling his people to give him their allegiance. So combined, they are saying when Jesus, John, John is basically saying, look, when Jesus speaks to you, God is speaking to you. When Jesus speaks to you, your true king, who deserves your allegiance, is speaking to you. The letters are all different, but they actually all have the same basic structure. Uh, the sender, Jesus, is identified, but in code. We'll talk about that in just a minute. And then Jesus encourages the church. He affirms what they're doing well. 
He corrects the church. He talks about what's going wrong. And then he motivates the church with a promise of future blessing and reward. So let's see how these patterns play out in these letters. First, Jesus is identified in code. He never says, hey, this is Jesus talking here. He doesn't sign, love Jesus. He says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in the right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's a hyperlink to chapter one. Or these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Again, another hyperlink to chapter one. This is John's way of saying, look, guys, these are not my words, okay? These are Jesus' words. The one who saved you through humiliation and sacrifice, the one who conquered death, is speaking to you all right now. Listen to him. And then Jesus, after he's identified, he encourages the churches. He affirms what they're doing right. Every human being, I don't care how independent you say you are, desperately needs and seeks affirmation. Not if you know what I'm talking about. Most of the time, we seek affirmation from people. A lot of the time, we will bend and twist ourselves into all kinds of shapes to get affirmation from people. Because for human beings, affirmation is like oxygen. It's like food. We need it really, really bad. And Jesus is watching the churches. He knows our deeds. He knows what we've been up to. He's seen it all. And listen to, listen to what he says to these seven churches. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and perseverance. I know that you test your leaders and you discern whether or not they're from me. I know that you have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. I know that you've remained faithful to me despite pressure and persecution. I know your love and your faith and your service. I know that you have kept my word. Jesus is among the churches. He sees what's going on and he affirms what they're doing well. He's like a proud parent cheering on his kids from the sideline or the audience. In Matthew 25, Jesus invites his followers to imagine the day when we will see him face to face and hear the words that we've been longing to hear our entire lives. Well done, good and faithful servants. Some of you grew up in homes or in churches that were heavy on criticism and light on affirmation, if you were ever affirmed at all. You heard all about how you were falling short, but rarely about what you were doing well. And maybe as a result, you've come to imagine that Jesus is the same way. And so when Jesus says, I know your deeds, you brace yourself. Because you hear, I know all the ways you've screwed up. But that's not the picture we get of Jesus in these chapters. Instead, we get a picture of Jesus who sees what we're doing well, who affirms what's true and beautiful and good about our lives together and our witness as a community. One of the things that strikes, uh, strikes me about Jesus when I read the Gospels is how often Jesus goes out of his way to affirm the faith and love and sacrifice of the people around him, often in the lives of people that nobody else noticed, that no one ever looked for anything good in. But Jesus does, and he does it over and over and over again. Friends, if you've been beaten down by criticism, John wants you to see that Jesus is different. 
He's not like the hypercritical people in your life, past or present. What do you think Jesus would affirm in college church? What do you think he would say we're doing well? That would be a good conversation to have over dinner today or with your small group this week. I could imagine Jesus saying to us, you have cared for the least of these. You have had a heart for the nations of this world. You have held fast to the teachings of Scripture for 51 years and counting. What do you think Jesus would say to us? Jesus also corrects the churches. According to Scott McKnight, Jesus addresses disordered love, distorted teachings, corrupted worship, and inconsistent behavior. So let's look at these. First, disordered love. Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, you have forsaken your first love. He doesn't say, you stopped loving me. He says, you've stopped loving me supremely. I'm no longer your priority. I've fallen in your mind. Ryan Burge is a political scientist who specializes in uh, observing religious behavior in America. And his recent work has had, had to do with what's been called the great de-churching. The fact that over the past generation, 40 million Americans have stopped going to church, who used to go to church. It's a staggering number. About 10 million of those left because of a change in worldview, left because of scandal, left because of church hurt. Those are stories that we need to hear, we need to wrestle with. We need to be humbled by those stories. We need to learn from them. But according to his research, about 30 million people have stopped going to church without ever making a conscious decision to stop. Think about that. 30 million Americans in the last generation have stopped going to church without ever making a conscious decision to stop. They just drifted. They just got distracted. They lost their first love. Friends, this is Babylon. This is what Babylon looks like. It is a culture in which all of the options in front of us lead us away from Jesus. If we're not deliberate, if we're not rooted in community, if we're not fanning the flame of our first love, that could be us in a year or two or five. When he drilled into the data, he realized that in most cases, something interrupted their habit of practicing their faith. Maybe a move to a different part of the country or a different neighborhood or youth sports. And they just never got back into the habit. For every Christian who stopped practicing their faith because of a change in belief or because of scandal or church hurt, three stopped practicing for no reason in particular. Their love simply went cold. Something else became more important. That's disordered love. And Babylon will seize on that because it will present so many options to fill the void. Next, distorted teaching. Several of the letters uh, reference false teachers who are leading believers astray. Part of what makes Babylon so seductive is that its teachers usually tell us exactly what we want to hear. And what we want to hear 
is that following Jesus is going to be super easy. It's not going to cost you that much. You can stay in control. You can have the life you've always wanted. You can blend in with your surroundings and do pretty much whatever you want. Just, you know, throw Jesus a bone every once in a while. And of course, the real Jesus says, if anyone wants to become my disciple, he or she must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. That's one flavor. Another flavor is, you know, the problem of the world these days is those people. So just avoid those people and make sure they never get power and you'll be fine. And there are millions of Christians talking like that. The real Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The real Jesus says, follow me as I cross the road to the other and turn enemies into friends. Jesus speaks to corrupted worship, and by worship I don't mean music. I mean, what do we ascribe worth to? That's what the word worship means, giving worth to something. Who or what do we look to for meaning and purpose and security and hope? Who do we admire and imitate? Who are we trying to please? Babylon applies constant pressure on us to go along to get along. If you want to belong, if you want to fit in, if you want to move up in the world, get with the program. Drink the Kool-Aid. Let the system define reality. David Brooks wrote, Never underestimate the power of the environment you work in to gradually transform who you are. When you choose to work at a certain company, you are turning yourself into the sort of person who works at that company. Now, you could replace the word company with friend group. It's incredibly difficult to resist the power of a group to form us into its own image. Not impossible, just incredibly difficult. And we tend to succeed where we have a counteracting group that's even more substantial to us. Once you look at a group of people and say, I want to be like them, you are setting the course of your formation for good or for ill. If you want to know who you actually worship, not who you say you worship, but who you actually worship, ask yourself, whose approval matters the most to you? Whose rejection do you fear the most? That's your first love. That's your highest allegiance. Is it Jesus? And then finally, Jesus addresses inconsistent behavior. Twice in chapter 2, Jesus speaks to churches that are flirting with paganism and practicing sexual immorality which in that culture went hand in hand because in Rome, the temple is not where you went to learn how to be good and true and right. It's where you went to have sex with prostitutes. In Asia Minor, that was a normal thing to do. The Romans believed that you should be loose with sex and tight with money. Jesus taught his followers to be loose with money, to be generous, and to be tight with sex, to be faithful within marriage and chaste outside of it. 
to reject Babylon's ways is to invite scorn and derision. There is so much pressure to blend in, to reduce the friction, to look normal. Now, some people kind of struggle with the framing of Revelation because it it seems to present this either-or approach to life. You're either playing for Team Jesus or Team Dragon. Your life either points to the New Jerusalem or to Babylon. Where's the nuance, right? Where's the nuance? There is none. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. You will either hate one and love the other or despise one and be devoted to the other. Don't be indecisive, Jesus is saying. Don't ride the fence. Make a decision. Jesus confronts the church in Laodicea for being lukewarm, for being neither hot nor cold. His most piercing words in the Gospels were aimed at frauds, people who played at religion, who went through the motions externally, but whose hearts were far from God. People who say, I will follow Jesus as long as it doesn't cost me anything, as long as I get to stay in control, as long as he doesn't get in the way of my other commitments, as long as my friends and colleagues don't think I'm weird. All of the issues that Jesus addresses in the seven churches are at root compromises with Babylon. Babylon is penetrating the churches. Babylon is colonizing in the churches. And unless we see this, unless we recognize this, we're vulnerable. We're sitting ducks for syncretism and compromise. A generation ago, Ron Sider wrote a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. Just last month, Russell Moore published a book called Losing Our Religion, an Altar Call for Evangelical America. Now, Sider and Moore come from substantially different church backgrounds, yet they are making the same point. The reason that the gospel is losing its power in our culture The reason that many are fed up with Christianity and leaving the church, the reason so many in our culture want nothing to do with the church is not because we're too much like Jesus, but because we're too much like the world. Babylon has so infiltrated the church that many who say they follow Jesus look no different than those who don't. If you were to go downtown today after church and walk up to a random person on the street and say, What's your perception of Christians? What do you think they would say? What do you think the perception would be? Chances are you would hear words like self-righteous, xenophobic, hypocritical, judgmental, obsessed with fighting culture wars, really politically involved to the extreme. And while that may not be an accurate assessment of Christians across the board, it is nonetheless the perception of many people in our culture. And that should make us sad. It is highly unlikely that you will find someone who says, you know what, Christians are too much like Jesus and he was weird. Most Americans actually have a very high opinion of Jesus. Now they may not know Jesus all that well, but most Americans have a generally high opinion of him and are interested in learning more about him. When the church compromises with Babylon, it repels people from Jesus. That's what's at stake. Jesus' solution to our Babylonian captivity is 
repentance. The word repent comes from the Greek word metanoia, which means to, to turn around, to change your mind, to move in a new direction. Jesus never condemns these churches. He's for them. He loves them. He doesn't browbeat them or criticize them. He just calls them to repent. Calling us to repent is an act of love because repentance leads to salvation. It leads to abundant life. Jesus is for us. He wants us to flourish. But he knows that for us to truly flourish, we need to recognize and resist Babylon. This past week, I was talking with a group of young leaders about the spiritual danger of busyness and hurry. And this group, really bright group, very quickly diagnosed the problem. Very, very quickly recognized the dangers of busyness and hurry for their spiritual lives, for their well-being. The much harder question was, how do we slow down? And the question behind that question is, how do we resist Babylon while we're living in Babylon? And the answer is, well, by fixing our eyes on Jesus. Some of you might remember those um, WWJD bracelets. I think they peaked around like 1997 when I was a sophomore in high school. Uh, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Scott McKnight says we, sh we should be wearing a different bracelet. One that says, do we know Jesus well enough to know what he would do? It's kind of primary, isn't it? Do we know Jesus, not as our homeboy, not as our lucky rabbit's foot, but as the savior of the world and the one true king, this image that John gives us in chapter one? Do we know that one day every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow down to him? Do we know that Jesus? The one who rules over the nations? Do we know the Jesus who emptied himself of all his power and privilege in order to take on our flesh, who experienced immense pressure to compromise, to bend to the will of the crowd? Jesus who was tempted by Satan to avoid suffering so that he could seize glory for himself, but who nonetheless resisted over and over and over again. Why? Because the only way that he could save us the only way that he could break the power of sin, the only way that he could defeat death was by going through it himself, by suffering and dying, not for people who might deserve such a sacrifice, but for his sinners, for his enemies. Resisting Babylon starts with fixing our eyes on him. Yay, kids, welcome, come on in. Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. A yoke is a wooden cross piece that connects two animals so that they really lock into one another shoulder to shoulder. When one moves, the other moves. When Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he's saying, watch me. Watch how I do it. Let me show you how to be human. Let me show you how life works best. When I move, you move. Just like that. Don't just imitate how I speak and how I act. Imitate how I train when no one else is looking. Imitate how I leave the crowd and go to quiet places to be with my father. Imitate how I embrace my limits and maintain boundaries. Imitate how I cross the road to be with those who are different, to dignify them and welcome them into the father's heart. 
Imitate how I lay down my life for others, including my enemies. Imitate how I prioritize relationships, how I practice the presence of God and people. Imitate how I walk through life at three miles per hour so that I don't burn out and exhaust myself. Imitate how I live in the present rather than being stuck in the past or obsessed with the future. We resist Babylon by fixing our eyes on Jesus, by taking his yoke upon us and adopting his priorities, his rhythms, and by being a part of a community that's following Jesus together. The Dartmouth professor I mentioned earlier said that if we want to resist the malformations of our digital age, we need to form communities with like-minded people who deliberately choose to live from a different set of values and who cultivate unique, even bizarre habits in our world. So for him, that meant finding a group of families who decide we're going to eat dinner together, and our phones are going to be in the other room, and and who will say to their kids, no devices until you're 16. Go play outside. For him, that meant, you know, making those kinds of radical lifestyle decisions. If we want to resist Babylon and remain faithful to the way of Jesus, we're going to have to be that deliberate in our relationships, in our habits. Beliefs are important, but we need practices if we want to actually become like Jesus. We need the practice of community if we're going to resist individualism. We need the practice of fasting if we're going to resist hedonism. We need the practice of hospitality, welcoming the stranger, if we're going to resist xenophobia and tribalism. We need the practice of Sabbath, if we're going to resist careerism and exhaustion. We need the practice of prayer, if we're going to resist escapism. We need the practice of generosity, if we're going to resist materialism. And we need a community to nurture these practices together. These seven letters are not a report card. The point is not, okay, it looks like Smyrna gets an A, Laodicea, eh, maybe a D minus. Now, don't read them like that. The point is, we who gather to follow Jesus in our particular Babylon are in a battle. Not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The things that are warring, For our souls are not people, they are ideas. Ideas that become embodied in systems and institutions and cultures and technologies, all of which exert tons and tons of pressure on us. And if we're not careful, if we're not alert, if we're not super deliberate about fixing our eyes on Jesus and putting on his yoke and meeting together, we will eventually cave to that pressure. We will drift from our first love. We will become lukewarm. In each of the letters, Jesus motivates the church to keep going. He says, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Elsewhere, he says, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Sometimes we forget just how often Jesus speaks to his followers about future reward. And he's trying to motivate us to not give up, to stay the course, no matter what it costs. 
Because if we stick with him, we will share in his victory. We will enter the life that is truly life. We will hear him say those words that we desperately long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servants. As the Apostle Paul says, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal.